He's involved in a number of businesses. He's a great role model. Telling it like it is. Giving you both sides of the story. This is Cats at Night. Great American, a great New Yorker. Now, here's John Katsimatidis. This is John Katsimatidis. This is Cats at Night, the number one show at 5 o'clock. And uh, we have a great show for you today. I mean... I feel like we've been working all day, Lydia. Like you. You're always we working 24-7. We started this morning. Absolutely. Morning. We worked four hours this, tonight. WABC tonight. now stands for Always Broadcasting Cats. Oh. <laughs> and we got a great show. And this is a TriCast. This is a broadcasting on WABC uh, Radio 770 uh, Studio and uh, 970 AM The Answer and uh, WLIR. And we have two common sense Democrats in the studio. What is it? Republicans don't work on Fridays? I guess not. Friday? What is it? Yeah, I don't know. And uh, we have Judge good. Richard Weinberg and uh, Governor David Patterson. And uh, I want to wish a happy Easter to all our friends and a happy Good Friday and, and a happy Passover. Absolutely. And Lydia, we have a great show. What do we have? We have a fantastic show. We're going to be speaking with Larry Kudlow. What the heck is going on with the markets? Kathy Wild will find out if New York City is opening back up. I hope to God it is. And then Dr. Peter Mikolos. But first on the line, we have Dr. William Parker. He is the former CEO and president of the East-West Institute. He's a retired senior U.S. naval officer who commanded three warships and later a squadron of warships. He also served as the chief of staff for the U.S. Naval Surface Forces. Welcome, Dr. Parker. Uh, It's great to be back on your show. Thank you. Uh, So many things are happening, uh, Dr. Parker. Uh, This it's an embarrassment. The, The Russians don't have an army. Do they have a navy? How can they allow a couple of missiles to shoot down their flagship? Well, it's, it's really interesting. The, uh, when, when you look at this particular missile, the Neptune missile, it is uh, Ukrainian built, and it's an upgrade from an old uh, Russian variant. It now has 190-mile uh, range, which is significantly more than the Russian variant or the former Soviet variant. It uh, has a larger warhead. Uh, and, and quite frankly, uh, it looks like they, uh, they caught the Russians uh, not paying attention. Uh, and, and not only does it, uh, it show that they don't have their air defense capability uh, in place, but it also says they don't have the damage control capability in place, that once you take a hit, you're able to respond to it and keep the ship afloat and operating. So it's a, it's a real embarrassment. Not to mention the fact that it's named after Moscow, the city uh, itself, the capital, and was the the head warship in charge of the invasion uh, when uh, when Russia first invaded Ukraine. They have no army, they have no navy, and they have no air force. What do they have? Do they, if they have nukes, do they work? Well, I um, hope we don't find I, out. I wouldn't say they don't have an army, navy, or air force. They certainly have a lot of numbers. Uh, and numbers matter, but numbers by themselves uh, uh, won't do it all. Uh, do I think their their nukes work? I think at least some of them do. Um, I, I I think that would be a uh, a bad decision to assume that none of them work. But but at the same time, um, I do believe that uh, that the United States, our friends and allies, have the ability to defend against those. I, I, I agree. Uh, that one more question before, and then I'll let you guys do it. Uh, the um, there's two reports. One says half of the sailors died and drowned, and the other one has says they all drowned. Do we, do we know what the truth is yet? 
No, we don't. We don't know what the truth is. Uh, they're they're still clarifying that. We do know that the ship went down. Uh, we do know that they had over 500 personnel on board. Uh, we do know that uh, that they responded to it poorly and then tried to tow it and responded to it even worse. Uh, but don't know how many uh, how many sailors were uh, were lost yet. But like the the uh, army that you talked about earlier, uh, they clearly aren't well trained. Uh, and it does show the the failures of leadership at the highest levels uh, in Russia when you're dealing with uh, military, whether it's the Navy, the Army, et cetera, that can't operate. And, and remember, too, uh, you're also having uh, a Russian aircraft that are getting shot down. So it's pretty interesting considering uh, uh, they're going up against a significantly smaller uh, country. Uh, Governor Patterson, you had a question. Dr. Parker, to what do you attribute this horrible performance and this amateurish behavior on the part of the Russians? Now, they invaded Crimea in 2014, and that seemed to work out pretty well. But I guess when you really think about it, no matter how good you think your army, your navy is, no matter what country you are, if you haven't had military action, which is generally a good thing. In other words, when you've had peace for a long period of time— it's hard to assess what would happen if you injected yourself into a warlike circumstance. Uh, Governor, I think you're I think you're spot on there. And I, I will tell you, it's all about leadership. And then you know all about that. Um, the, the reality is that uh, somebody has failed to oversee uh, and make sure that these uh, Army, Navy, Air Force is uh, is maintained well and trained well. Uh, something that you, uh, you you don't see. Uh, in the U.S., we we uh, organize, train, and equip our military quite well, uh, and they're experienced. And and I think this is when you do a comparison between uh, the Chinese military and the United States military. While numbers matter, and they have now a larger navy than we do, which we should be concerned about, the reality is they are not trained, and they certainly don't have the operational experience that the U.S. Navy, uh, Army, uh, Marine Corps, etc., has. And leadership. Boy, does leadership matter when it when it comes to these decisions? Uh, and and we saw a failure of leadership uh, on on how we how we uh, left Afghanistan, and we see um, a positive leadership on how the Ukrainians are currently dealing uh, with this fight internally. So I I think that uh, at the end of the day, it's all about leadership. Dr. Parker, I have a, a two-part question. Were there nuclear weapons on the ship? And as far as the big picture, you know, people, the average American, what does this mean, the fact that the Ukrainians were able to sink this ship? Does it mean that Ukraine has a chance of winning this war? Yeah, so so uh, great, great questions, ma'am, on both, on both uh, points. On the first one, um, they have not confirmed, they, the Russians, have not confirmed whether the warheads were nuclear or were not. But the Slava uh, traditionally had nuclear-capable uh, weapons, and they had, um, they had silos set and weapon systems set to be able to launch nuclear-tipped warheads. Whether they actually had them loaded or not, I don't know at this point. Um, the second point on uh, morale— I think is 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 huge here uh, now that you know the Russians just apparently uh, fired and I, I've heard uh, recently arrested uh, the admiral in charge of the Black Sea Fleet, which is huge. Um, morale on the Ukrainian side has to be absolutely huge right now uh, in, in able to take down this uh, this flagship. Uh, and at the same time, I think um, the reality is you're going to see. Uh, unfettered and uncontrolled attacks on Kiev in the next 48 to 72 hours. So 
Uh, I don't think this is a win by any by any means, but I certainly think it's a tactical win uh, for the Ukrainians at this point, And it shows the vulnerabilities of the Russians. Dr. Parker, can you imagine any way in this country where people would get arrested because they're losing the fight? <laughs> um, uh, well, the answer the answer is yes, actually. Um, I, I will tell you that if um, uh, if you lose uh, hundreds of sailors and you lose a major warship uh, and it and it becomes clear that it's because of failure of your personal leadership, then you're held accountable. One of the things that the U.S. military does very well is hold its senior leadership uh, responsible, whether it's a collision at sea or it's inappropriate uh, decision-making or behavior. But going to the, to the level of arrest for that, uh, probably not, but I could certainly see some significant repercussions based on uh, the failure of leadership, which we certainly saw in this case. I totally agree with you. Dr. Parker, it's, uh, it's Judge Richard Weinberg. There are some reports that the, uh, the defense minister has either had a heart attack or he's been arrested or he's been uh, disappeared. Have you heard anything about that? Judge, I, I, I did hear that about uh, 30 minutes ago, um, and, and it's still a rumor uh, right now. It has not been confirmed as far as I know, um, but, but that would not surprise me at all. Also remember that the FSB, uh, the former KGB, has had over 100 personnel uh, arrested, and Putin has said he's trying to clean out the FSB right now, which means there's major internal strife going on within the country. Uh, remember that Putin has said all along that the one thing that he would not accept is a colored revolution on his watch. And it looks like that's the way it's heading right now, that um, that there are a lot of Russians still protesting in the streets. And there's certainly a lot of leadership saying we can't allow this to continue. Our economy is now uh, really in the tanks uh, and getting worse. And at the same time, uh, we're now looking, appearing to the rest of the world like we're weak and we're losing, uh, losing the war. And then that's significant for Putin, who, as you know, um, is, is pretty self-confident and, and would never want to see himself in a situation where he looks weak or his country looks weak. What's so, up, General, just one last question. I'm thinking back. Nikita Khrushchev, when he was running the Soviet Union, was removed in 1964 and uh, it wasn't always clear why he was removed. What do you think it would take before the generals in Russia would start to have the conversation about Putin? Um, I, I think those conversations are probably ongoing. I think it's uh, what what it would take is enough of them uh, uh, getting together and actually pulling the trigger. I think it's very similar to uh, removing Hitler during uh, World War II. There were a number of generals uh, and, and senior leadership that wanted to remove him, and they tried several times. Whether or not they'll succeed uh, is another story. And remember, again, Putin is a former FSB KGB guy uh, and knows how to play in this arena and, and was playing in this arena uh, in the Gorbachev days, et cetera. So he understands the dynamic here. Um, but but I think he's in, in great uh, in great trouble right now. It's also very interesting to see that the Turks are playing a significant role in uh, providing drones and other weapon systems um, going counter to their close friends, uh, the Russians, which they have been very close in the past. If you remember when the Russian ambassador to 
Turkey was executed by a Turkish security officer. The first phone call that was made right after that happened was Putin to Erdogan saying, uh, look, these things happen. We're still close friends. So they've been close for a long time. And when you look at the S-400 missile system that the, the Russians were uh, providing to the uh, to the Turks, which which became a major issue uh, with the United States, these are the type of issues that it looked like Turkey was leaning much more uh, pro-Russia than pro-NATO. And now they have swung back to being uh, very much pro-NATO and actually kind of leading the charge, if you will, locally uh, on what weapon systems to include those drones were available early on in the fight. And also the sea lanes. They're controlling the sea lanes, aren't they? Absolutely. Uh, great, great point. And you're absolutely right. And with the slack of sea lines communication, uh, that plays that plays a huge role, especially if you, as you move ships past Istanbul up into the Sea of Marmara and then eventually up into the Black Sea, someplace I've operated a lot in my career um, uh, with destroyers, et cetera. Uh, and it's it's a complex place to uh, to operate both submarines and surface ships. Uh, and, and part of the reason is because of the saltwater, freshwater inversion. But uh, there's other reasons, too, one of which is you're you're close to the littorals all the way around you while you're in the Black Sea operating up there. So you have a lot of countries surrounding you. Dr. Parker, thank you so much uh, for coming on. Thank you. You've served our country and continue to speak out for our country. God bless you. Have a happy Easter and God bless America. Thank, thanks, sir. Thank you. Uh, now, uh, an hour ago, I uh, interviewed uh, Governor Hochul for our Sunday show, which is Easter Sunday, so we're pre-taping it. And I think we have a little bit of a tidbit that we will play. Starting in January, I went with Mayor Adams his first week on the job. We went into the subways. We talked about how we have to deal with the homelessness issue, mental health, but also you know, making sure that people feel safe there or else they will not come back to the city. They will not go to their jobs as long as they have that insecurity. Then a couple weeks later, I realized that so many illegal guns are coming from other states. We don't make them here. They're coming from elsewhere. So I convened nine states. Now, John, this has never happened anywhere in the country. I brought together nine governors and the mayor of New York City with the NYPD and the Boston PD and said, I need you all hands on deck to have the first ever gun interdiction task force so we can share intelligence Information that had never been shared before about where the guns are coming from, where they're going, and we've arrested, you know, hundreds of people, have confiscated thousands of guns, and that's just getting started. That's even before I took this issue on in the budget. And if you'd like, I can walk you through some of the changes we have, because I know uh, you and I spoke about this at wow. the Police Athletic League lunch, and people wanted changes. I said I would get it done in the budget. People said and, we couldn't and, and do it, and we did. Want. Well, uh, that's not a true indication of what she, we talked about because it was a 13-minute interview, and that's only a minute. Mm -hmm. And uh, I said to her that uh, the people that uh, all New Yorkers are going to support is people that are going to keep them safe. And I said to the governor that I'm concerned about – people are concerned about being safe in the subway stations, in the subways, and I'm concerned about people being safe in the streets of New York, and we're concerned about the mentally ill – and I also said that uh, uh, if people get caught with a gun, go directly to jail, do not pass go, do not collect $200, do Why? not collect a disappearance ticket. Why did they keep talking just about the guns? What well, about the people only, that uh, shoot well, the guns? We got, a portion, we got a portion of the interview, and she addresses what I've said, too. 
And uh, uh, also the, the fact is, I said, if people can conduct crimes from out of state and they come into New York because it's a light, a light situation. Because um, they're not being held. They, they, so they, they come in what from do you New mean? Jersey, they come yeah. from Connecticut. They you come can't from give Australia. them a disappearance ticket. Governor, what do you think? Well, I think, uh, actually, first I, w- I want to say, I actually appreciate what Lydia said, and I'm a Democrat, but this seems to me it's like in the Democratic handbook that every time there's a crime, we start talking about guns. It's the guns for And I remember after the shooting in Newtown, in, in, in uh, Connecticut, back in 2012, that 30 minutes after the shooting, Mayor Bloomberg put out the statement about guns. And this was really more about a, a mental health problem. But he didn't even wait uh, even, to David, miss the opportunity. David, it's even broader than that. There was a great piece, an article by Dan Henninger in the Wall Street Journal yesterday, and he talked about evil. And this is the problem, whether you're talking about the Russian invasion of Ukraine or what's going on in our streets all across the country. There is such a thing as evil, and you need to confront it. You have to address it firmly, and you have to make sure the bad guys are the ones who are cowed, not the good citizens. Well, I, I, Your Honor, I must tell you, I've always thought that everyone's entitled to a, to a fair trial. But I could not believe when the defense attorney for this Frank James guy got up yesterday and said, we're asking the public to withhold judgment right now. In exchange for what? He shot up the whole subway system, could have killed 50 people in there, and she thinks we should withhold, withhold judgment? Is she saying it wasn't him? You know what we got to say to that defense attorney? They're full of crap. <laughs> yeah, that, I'll, I'll tell you, that offended me so much, it, it's, it's hard for me to even laugh because it was unbelievable. Now, at, at, in, in response to your original uh, question, John, that's why I've been saying there's even been a little too much talk about bail reform because the real issues, I think, involve sentencing structure. That's what I'd like to see people on both sides of the aisle Meet halfway and talk about that. I think a crime is a multifaceted problem. It's not only the bail reform. It's a culture. It's the gangs. It's and it's the uh, it's socioeconomic issues. It's the projects. And it's also that people have a right to a fair and speedy trial. People shouldn't be languishing in Rikers because you are innocent until proven guilty. So like John, that great idea, build more courthouses so we don't have people waiting around for, for years or months like Khalif Browder. You, as we said this morning, you have Rikers. You can use Rikers. You can do it for mental health programs. You can do it for the homeless. You can do it for drug addiction. You have the facilities there. Clean them up. Use that. They should not have jails in residential neighborhoods. That brings the danger into residential neighborhoods. Absolutely. Now, we have another... uh, We have to uh, go to a break, they're saying. We're going to go to a break, or you want to do that one-minute tidbit from uh, Dick Morris? Next, we also had, we pre-taped against for Sunday, Dick Morris, who's on on Sunday at, at noontime on WABC Radio. Uh, let's hear that one-minute pre-tape. I think that we're finally seeing exposed the true motivation of the board members of Twitter, uh, which is they're being given an offer here to sell their stock for about an $8 million profit. And they're saying, they're basically saying no. Uh, and it's not that the money isn't good enough. It's beyond what they expected. But it's that the politics don't come up to their expectations. And they want to keep Twitter as an ideological conservative force uh, to stop Trump and to uh, advance the new left agenda. 
And I think that their, their, their protection hiding behind journalism and saying they just want free flow of information is now being exposed because Musk is calling their bluff. But ultimately, Musk will have the last laugh here because if the, if the Twitter board turns down this offer, as soon as the Republicans take over, they're going to pass draconian legislation to stop Twitter from becoming a political party. Among the things they'll do is repeal Section 230, which means anybody can, can sue them for libel or slander and stuff. Great. Oh, that was great. That was uh, Dick Morris, and uh, he'll be talking about more about it at noontime on WABC. And uh, we're going to take a quick break. And we got Larry Kudlow will be waiting on the line. And we had a great dinner last night. And uh, uh, we have an inter- interesting talk today. And uh, Larry is ready to tell us the way things are. Let's take that quick break. A common sense recap of the day's biggest stories. It's John Katsimatidis and Cats at Night on 77 WABC. Well, you know the what that cavalry, means. <laughs> the cavalry is coming. And with us today on Friday, uh, Good Friday, is uh, Larry Kudlow, one of the country's, the world's greatest economists. How are you, Larry? I'm good, John. Just good. The cavalry um, is coming, Larry. The cavalry is coming. Uh, it can't be fast enough for me. By the way, I don't know if you got into it in your discussion of Twitter with uh, Dick Morris. But they put up, the board has put up one of these poison pills. Did you cover that? Uh, no, uh, we covered it in the fuller interview, not in the tidbit. Uh, they did put put up a, uh, a poison pill. And uh, tell us, what do you think is going to happen with that? Well, I think, you know, I think the shareholders are going to be furious. It's a typical defensive position by a board that is under siege, uh, the so-called limited duration shareholder rights. And it, it gives uh, it gives shareholders a right uh, to buy stock at a discounted price. But the point is, before Elon Musk came around, the price was discounted. That was the problem. Besides the free speech issue, the stock had been falling for months and months and months uh, because Twitter had been ridiculed and you know because people have criticized him. I mean, I am a thousand percent in favor of Elon Musk taking it over. He's a free speech advocate. Uh, I think the world is a guy. I think he's kind of a genius, actually. But we will see. They, you know, Morgan Stanley is the banker. Uh, Elon's challenge here, I think, John, and this is going to go for a while, is to persuade other large shareholders. Uh, for example, Elliott Management is going to have to persuade them. He's going to have to persuade ARCS Management uh, and probably Silver Hill management. It's he's got to get show people he can raise the cash. He's gonna to have to leverage quite a bit. He's gonna to have to leverage off of his own uh individual shareholdings. I mean he's worth a lot of money, obviously, two hundred and fifty or two hundred and sixty billion dollars, but he doesn't have the cash on hand. So he's gotta do that. But his offer, which is a forty percent premium, okay, is gonna be very enticing to a lot of shareholders. So that's the case he's going to have to make. He can construct a new business plan, which will make Twitter profitable again and get that share price back up again. So it's a complicated matter. It's probably not going to play out for a while. I agree. And the price of the stock reflected it uh, 
uh, you know, stay, staying at a 45 level. Um, uh, you think other people like Facebook and uh, uh, are going to panic over what's going on? Will the woke culture allow it to happen to switch over to Elon Musk? Well, you know, I, th- I think they will. I think there is going to be some panic. I think there's already some panic. And I think Google, I think Facebook is probably the most vulnerable, John. And there's another case where their share price has fallen significantly, uh, going back many months, actually. So I think this is shot across the bow. I wouldn't be surprised if other free speech activist investors uh, got involved, whether it's with Twitter or Google or Facebook. I mean, people have had it up to their eyeballs in the idea of censoring conservative opinion, but just censoring in general. You know, we believe in free speech, the First Amendment, and Elon Musk has been a champion of free speech. So, yeah, I think this is going to trigger some high anxiety uh, in these other social media companies. And frankly, I love it. I absolutely love it. I think it's long overdue. And you know what? I like the investor approach, John a takeover approach. I don't like the government regulatory approach. I don't like the government breakup approach. I don't want to destroy these companies, and I don't want the government to be in charge. I mean, we have uh, the Decency Act, the Telecom Decency Act, uh, which was over 25 years ago, and you could go and you could have a repeal of the liability protections that they have, the so-called Section 230 of that Telecoms Act. But I don't want the government to run it. You know, even some Republican senators, I think, have just gone off the deep end on this. So I really like this investor approach. And Elon Musk is such a great champion. But he's got to raise the cash and he's going to have to, you know, persuade some of the large holders. um, Paul Singer, for example, of Elliott Management, Kathy Woods of Arc Management to go along. Now, they approve of him. You know, they like him. They approve of him, but it's, it's going to be a battle. Some of the woke, some of the woke investment companies will fight on the other side. So this will be a Donnybrook. We had uh, a, a lot of good conversations last night at dinner. Uh, what else would you like to uh, tell well, the world? Yeah, the world. And, um, you know, we're beaming, I, off, we're beaming off of a solar system now, so. I know. <laughs> I know the Larry Kudlow show is broadcast throughout the solar system. Um, you know, I, I think the the big economic story, and, and it's a difficult story, is the inflation story. And you know, you had three very bad reports this past week. Okay, consumer price index up eight and a half percent year on year. Um, some people were trying to make a case that inside those numbers. There's a peak of inflation. I I don't agree with that. And then we had the producer price index. That's the wholesale prices paid by companies. But they've been paying huge prices, and they pass the cost along because there's so much excessive inflationary money out there. So the PPI is up 11.2%, all right? And I think that's a harbinger of the future. And then finally, uh, later in the week, we got the import price index, which is often a leading indicator. And that thing, John, is up 12.5%. So we're in for a rough time. And I don't see any chance that this inflation is going to go away. I think it's going to take a couple of years you know, to even remotely get back to the Fed's 
2% target. And here's another factoid. From, from the CPI, John, wages adjusted for inflation, real wages, are falling. And they're falling a lot. In the past 12 months, real average hourly earnings are down almost 3%. And real average weekly earnings are down 3.6%. So the typical family, the typical working family, is being hurt significantly by this inflation. Wages are rising and jobs are rising. I think that's great. But inflation is rising faster. So people have you know less to spend. And food prices are soaring. I mean, everything is soaring. Well, uh, like, like- housing, shelter, cars, transportation, gasoline, health care, commodities, services. You go, you know, it's it's widespread. Like I advocated last night, the, the government, the White House has two choices. You can reduce the prices, price of oil to half, and you can bring down the price of food if you turned on North America on crude oil and bring uh, crude oil from 107 down to 55. Yeah, but— Or— I didn't finish. Sorry. Or— <laughs> You can allow them, or you can allow them to raise the price of interest rates to uh, higher and higher with the thirty-year bond, thirty-year uh, T-bill being uh, no, no, pardon me, the thirty-year mortgage being over five percent, and yeah. kill and 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 the White House will kill another industry or kill the housing industry. So those are the two choices. Well, well here's the thing. I agree with you about drill, drill, drill. We should open the spigots for oil and gas. We should open the spigots for new pipelines. And our production of LNG, which is the cleanest liquefied gas in the world, uh, would be a great help uh, for Europe. But also, by the way, if we opened the spigots and sold everything we could uh, for LNG to India, uh, or and or China, that would replace the dirty burning coal, which those countries rely on. In other words, if we open the spigots for uh, natural gas and liquefied natural gas exports around the world, we would do more to curb carbon emissions in these other countries, and we would you know help Europe get out from under the energy boot of Russia. So I'm with you on that. It's Absolutely, too much 100%. Sense. But let, let me make another point, though. This inflation problem is much greater than just energy. Yeah. And, in fact, I will add to that food. I mean, what you're seeing now is the so-called core rates, excluding food and energy. I mean, the CPI is 6.5%. Uh, the imports, ex- excluding fuel, is 7.5%. And the PPI is 7%. So that tells you that the government is going to have to stop spending money and stop the deficit financing. And the Federal Reserve, which is probably going to have the biggest burden of this, they are going to have to become much more aggressive in curbing the uh, money supply. So... Uh, this story, uh, you know, I, I think you're seeing the bond market. You mentioned mortgage rates, and I think you're right. That's going to be a threat to housing over time. But I think um, the, the, the entire bond market is in a transition phase. 
because the Fed has been holding down long-term rates uh, actually for a long time, actually for about 15 years. But in this latest episode, the last couple of years, now that the Fed will gradually uh, relinquish the hold on long-term rates, those rates have to adjust to the prevailing inflation trend. They just have to. That's what market forces do. And, um, and that's, you know, we're in for a, a strong multi-year bout of stagflation, I think, where the basic inflation rate is, is going to be 5 6% at a minimum, at a minimum. And as I said earlier, I'm not sure this uh, round has peaked yet. And the economy can grow, but it will grow sluggishly, like 2%. And that's the classic definition of stagflation. And that's not the position you want to be in. You just don't want to be in there. Agreed. So, Larry know, Kudlow, we're out of time. But this discussion, but this discussion will continue. Uh, and uh, thank you so much. Thank you for everything you've done for our country and continue to speak out for our country. And God bless you. Have a happy Easter. And God you bless too. America. Thank you. Happy holiday. Take care. The cavalry is coming. And, uh, well, Larry just left. So you left. He left with the cavalry. <laughs> the cavalry escorted, come, come escorted back. him back to Connecticut. Uh, let's, let's, yeah, yes, Judge. I have to tell you something. Tell I, us. Tell us. This is very important. I watched Biden get up there at the White House and say that 70 percent of the inflation problem is because of Putin. How do you deal could with the White worse. House? He could have said there was Trump's problem. No, but how do you, <laughs> how do you deal with an issue when, when the denying reality well, is much as a further problem? 70 percent of the inflation that exists right now was there before the war even yeah. started. Now, no, I'll tell you the, the worst problem. If, even if the cavalry comes in. And changes Congress, even if it changes the Senate, Biden still runs the energy policy. Biden will still say, well, we're not going to buy anything from North America. Still is going to buy from uh, those crooks over there. And you heard Dr. Oz. He said we have over 200 years of natural gas and it's clean. It's and Canada has 100 years. It's so unbelievable. I also have another question. Maybe we'll answer it when we come back about how was BLM able to buy that $6 million mansion? And why did they pay over asking? What, laundering money. They're laundering money. So because I wanted to ask the attorneys, how were they able to do that? How were they I able to Let, take well, let's donations? Let's take a break and we'll come back and we'll talk some more. Okay. John Welcome back to the John Katz Matidis Cats at Night Show. Happy Good Friday to everybody. A happy Easter and also happy Passover, right? Soon, Judge Weinberg? Any minute. Any, any minute. Uh, how many hours? Is sundown? sundown? Sundown, right? Sundown. Sundown, sunset. Sundown. Uh, sundown, sunset. On the line with us right now is a great friend to WABC Radio. It's Kathy Wild. She is the president and CEO of the Partnership for New York City. Welcome, Kathy Wild, back to Cats at Night. Thanks so much. Good to be with you all. Well, happy Easter, happy Passover, whatever you celebrate. Everything. We celebrate everything. I do, too. <laughs> and I even have, you know, I, Kathy Wilder, you know what I said? Why the Greeks celebrate the week after uh, uh, the um, uh, Catholic Easter? We can, right. Uh, uh, next week, we can buy all our Easter bunnies at half price. <laughs> <laughs> 
very so good. That's judge. what the schism was about, right? When they separated <laughs> the two churches. Okay. Trying to go for the Easter Bunny. Yes. Ah, yes. The half price Easter. How is bunnies. the economy coming? I uh, interviewed the governor before, and it's going to appear on Sunday morning on the Cats Roundtable. And I said, uh, we used to have 66 million tourists. Uh, we use, you know, we want to open up New York City and eight and a half million New Yorkers demand to open up New York City and you, and we got to keep New York safe. And, um, she acknowledges that and that, you know, she'll talk about it more on, on Sunday morning. Uh, where are we and how far does this set us back? The, the problem in the subway, how far does it set up the impression? I mean, if you lived in Peekskill, uh, would you come into uh, to New York City and get uh, uh, to see a play? Well, actually, people were calling all over the world, calling into business leaders in New York after the shooting, the subway shooting this week, and just saying, "We're so sorry for you, and what a mess." And so, this is our global image is once again just as when we were the epicenter of the COVID when it hit the United States. Once again, our global in, image is, is really suffering. It hits close to home to me. I, uh, I live in Southwest Brooklyn, and seeing what went on in terms of how everybody can identify how helpless you would feel if you've got a mad gunman in a subway car with you. It, it, it's just a it's an image that we can all identify with. So it really sets us back in terms of restoring confidence in that system, I'm afraid. And uh, I've been hearing that the Uber drivers are also because a lot of people are afraid to take the subways, that the Uber prices have gone up. What have you heard, Kathy Wild? Um, I have heard that a lot of people are not willing to come back to the office to the Manhattan office because of number one fear of crime. It's not Uh the fear of the COVID anymore. We're dealing with a different set of issues. And that's obviously hurting small business in the Manhattan economy. You raised the question, John, about what's our economic situation. Well, actually, our economic situation is very good because the key drivers of our economy, financial services, uh, professional services, consulting services, media, they've all got the capacity now to operate remotely. And they have, we went through the, through the last two years, our economic output only declined 5.5% through the whole COVID and including the shutdown. So we have a very strong economy. Our tax rolls are higher than anybody expected because those sectors that operated remotely did better in the last two years than they've ever done before. We've got more venture capital investment in the technology sector in New York by three times than we had in 2019. So, so the economy at one level is doing fine. On the other hand, the brick-and-mortar economy, small retail and restaurants, uh, restaurants are still down 30% in their employment. Uh, the uh, Obviously, challenges across the entertainment, physical fitness, et cetera, industries. 
But those industries only make up 9% of our economy. Those are the industries that depend on tourism, hotels, et cetera. It's only 9% for all those industries of our economy. And that's why we got through the COVID so well. But they represent 20% of the jobs. And these are entry-level jobs. They're not uh, professional jobs for the most part. They're working-class jobs. They're really important to the survival of our city. And we've still got almost 300,000 jobs that we're down and it's in those sectors. So there's the good news of our macro economy and there's the bad news of the brick and mortar economy and what's happened to so many low wage workers and small businesses. And, and Kathy, it's Richard Weinberg. The other problem is with the perception of, of a lack of safety and the quality of life going down, people are voting with their feet and they're leaving. So you're losing some of the most productive wage earners and job suppliers. And that's what I'm concerned about. It's not just replacing bodies. It's a question of who you're placing them with. Yes, we did a survey about three weeks ago of um, almost 10,000 office employees. And you're absolutely right, Richard. What they focused on as their number one concern, again, was public safety. But when asked about what are they thinking about in terms of leaving the city, 40% of Manhattan residents said they were seriously thinking about moving out. And that is, again, an issue of public safety and the overall quality of life, livability of the city. And Kathy Wilds, at this point, I know several of my family members, they, they either have a hybrid work week or they're completely remote. Are the days of five-day in-person at the office work weeks over? I mean, do we have to reimagine what New York City is going to look like? Because I feel that we are never going to go back to that again. I think COVID was a game changer. The technology, people have realized they can be just as efficient at home. And I think those days are over for many, many companies and industries. Yes, this transition to the digital economy definitely means people can work from anywhere. And it's not scary that they'll work from home. What's really scary is they'll work from the other side of the world in a New York City job, and we won't get any of the benefits, taxes or otherwise, uh, or consumer spending, whatever. But I think New York is going to come back strong despite the hybrid work week. Right now, residential home prices and rents are higher in the city than they were in 2019. So we had a drop, yes, at the beginning of the COVID when a lot of people left and gave up their leases because they didn't know what was going to happen. But the residential market has roared back. So I think we're going to see changes. I think we'll see a less Manhattan-centric economy where much more is going to be happening in the communities where people live, whether it's in the five boroughs or it's in the suburbs. We'll see um, offices locating near where people live. We'll need to change our transportation system to accommodate new, new patterns of commuting. So... A lot is going to happen, and what's important is that we're thinking about what we have to do to cope with the new reality, not trying to go back to 2019, because that's not going to happen. 
Governor? Uh, Kathy, I was wondering, back in 2020, I had I don't know if I'd have even heard of Zoom. Zoom had been out there, but nobody really used it. Then once people started using it, even when it became possible for them to meet in person, sometimes they preferred Zoom. So do you think that what might actually just be happening is a rearrangement of the work process, but not necessarily a, de- a, decl- a declining of the work results. In other words, people just find a different way to get things done, but the economy will still be strong. I think that's certainly what has happened for the last two years. And, you know, that's basically what I was describing in terms of everybody was shocked that the economy did not collapse. We just went, there was a seamless transition in a matter of two or three weeks for the most part. It's amazing. Yes, it's truly amazing. But it accelerated. I mean, this trend was coming, the move to e-commerce, rather, you know, this this trend was coming, telehealth, but, sorry, dog. Hot dog. Um, (laughs) Small dog, hot dog. (laughs) Um, No, this move was coming, but the pandemic took what would have happened over 10, 15, 20 years, and it made it happen in like two weeks. Yep. So so we're going to have to play catch-up ball and figure out, everything we have to do to deal with changing our infrastructure and uh, and otherwise making uh, making the changes necessary for the city to continue to be successful as the global leader, certainly the global economic leader, the cultural leader, the leader in the health sector, all those things it, are going to take new tactics. Kathy, it actually reminds me of the way the healthcare system converted from the one big hospital in different neighborhoods to community health centers that there could be many of them closer to where people live. And that happened, you know, started about 20 years ago. But I'm not sure that it worked out for the best. You don't think it worked out for the best? No, you had all these local hospitals went broke, and we were going looking at the remnants of it uh, in the real estate business about a couple years ago. Well, John, I tell you, I was uh, actually my first job in New York was at Lutheran Medical Center in Brooklyn. And I um, I then 25 years later was chairman of the board of Lutheran when NYU Langone took it over. And we have never had better health care in southwest Brooklyn than right. since NYU we got, we, made we, that part of it. Kathy, system. we got to go. I understand the fire commissioner wants to uh, say hello. And and um, thank you for Kathy. Have a great Laura? Yes. Yes. Well, put put Laura, put put the fire commissioner on. Kathy, you could stay on if you want. Oh, you're not on yet? Oh, we We're have to take, take a break, break first. Yeah. Okay. You're welcome to stay on right. if you we'll want, Kathy. All right, we'll take a break, okay. and I'll, I'll sign off, but uh, Laura's great. So okay. I'm glad you're Let's having Let's take her that on. break. Okay. You're commuting home with Cats at Night. Now, here's John Katsimatidis on 77 WABC. Welcome back to the John Katsimatidis Cats at Night show on the line with us right now for her first time on Cats at Night. New York City First Deputy Fire Commissioner, Acting Commissioner Laura Kavanaugh. Uh, Commissioner Kavanaugh, I, I hear you're you're uh, young and it's really incredible what you have done. And just tell us about what you see as the future for New York City. Hey, for your uh, department. For having me on. Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, the department is going to tap into technology, I think, to make um, the job even safer for our members and make the city even safer for New Yorkers. So we're looking forward to the future. 
uh, firefighters, they, you know, they, they're heroes. They're heroes. They're running towards the danger while everybody else is, is running away. Uh, the morale continues, Absolutely. I believe, to be high. Uh, tell us about the men and women, um, the, the bravest of the men and women. Absolutely. I mean, I think you've seen, obviously, this week, you know, as an incredible example of that, of our members in fire and EMS running right into danger to save people um, at the risk of their own lives. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm actually sitting in a firehouse right now talking to you guys. Um, there was a fatal fire last night, and I went and spoke to the, the firefighters who were first due to the fire. So, you know, every day our members continue to do uh, extraordinary things. And uh, every, every day I feel lucky to work for them and to know them. Well, we are lucky to have you. Thank you so much, New York City First Deputy Fire Commissioner yeah. Laura Cavanaugh. Your Thank staff you. got to us late, and uh, we, you, we, we still have to put on another guest, and, and we'll have you on again. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thanks Thank for you. having me. Bye. Now, I understand we have Dr. Peter Michalos has been waiting for a few minutes. Dr. Michalos, the runners, he's our... What happened? Stand by uh, because they have to switch something because we're doing it so quickly. Our renaissance man, uh, our resident genius here at WABC Radio. Do we have Mikolos on the line? Oh, we're oh we're still waiting for Mikolos. I didn't realize to have him. So in the meantime, so again, okay, Governor Patterson, Black Lives Matter, the $6 million mansion. How are they getting away with this? How are it's they not white, in trouble? It's a white mansion, that's why. Oh. <laughs> okay, there uh, you go. It's not hard for organizations that are that nationally known to raise that kind of money or to have that kind of facility. It just kind of contradicts the uh, message message that they're trying to send. Okay, Dr. Peter Mikolos, what you got for us? Well, tonight I'm going to try to get in two and a half minutes. In 2016, there was a Nobel Prize for something called the mechanism of autophagy and autophagy and aging. What is that? The body's ability to clean up dead and dying cells, which are associated with cancer, neurological degenerative disorders, cardiac and skeletal motors. And this ability decreases as we age. And some refer to these as zombie cells. These zombie cells are dying and they generate inflammation, which aggravates all diseases as we age. And autophagy is the body's way of cleaning up and eating up these damaged cells in order to regenerate new healthy cells. So how do we turn on this autophagy to help our audience stay healthy? We need a cleanup crew in our bodies. And what does that exercise? We've shown even if it's 10 minutes a day, it's better than nothing. That helps. We've learned that eating less. When we consume too much sugar, the body's immune and protective and repair mechanisms say, relax, all is good. No need to go out and... uh, fight for food or clean up dying cells and repair damaged cells or cancer cells. So any cancer cells rapidly divide. They love sugar because it's instant gratification, gives them lots of energy to multiply. And we've learned about the foods that help autophagy, which is the cell cleanup, coffee, green tea, turmeric, ginger, Ceylon, Ceylon cinnamon, which also helps blood sugar, mushrooms, ashagi and reishi, and resveratrol. So stay healthy. And uh, the other thing is intermittent fasting, which we've talked about, and that helps clean up all the bad cells.